We've come as far as verse 9 of Mark 1, where he writes, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So it's immediately as he comes out of the water, this is one of Mark's favorite words. He uses it like 42 times in these 16 chapters. It's like, and sometimes straight away, you know, it's translated different, you know, but it's like it's an action gospel. Things are always happening. So Jesus arrives on the scene as John's baptizing, and he comes to be baptized by John. Jesus travels from Nazareth in Galilee to where John is baptizing near Jericho. This is several days' journey. And he comes to be baptized, this one called the Son of God. Many people wonder why Jesus was baptized. We're not told explicitly, and that's why people wonder. Because they have different questions and reasons about it. John's baptism, of course, was for repentance to the, to the remission of sins. And Jesus had nothing of which to repent. He was without sin. He's the first human being since the fall of man who had not sinned. Uh, first, he claimed to be himself to be without sin. In John 8.28, it says, He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. For I always do those things that please him. Everything Jesus did was pleasing to the Father. And then in John 8:46, speaking to those who were attacking him, he says, Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? And they had nothing to say. They had no sins to point out, you know. And it wasn't only Jesus who claimed this about himself. Others who were intimate with him, those who spent years in almost constant companionship with him, gave the same testimony. Uh, Peter, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know, under the law, a sacrifice had to be a perfect specimen without defect. Uh, John the Baptist was the first to call Jesus the Lamb of God. And here Peter, having spent three and a half years with Jesus, being uh, taught and discipled by him, he realized he's without blemish, without spot. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, Peter says, For this, for to this you were called, and he's speaking in the context of suffering wrongfully. Wait, Lord. I don't want to be called a suffering wrongfully. But it's how we respond to that. For this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin. And and he's quoting here from a chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 9. Who committed no sin, and the tense here indicates that he never did, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Isaiah 53, 9 that he's quoting. It says, They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And then the Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 3, and verse 5, he says, 
You know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. The consistent testimony of John, the son of Zebedee, is of the righteousness of Christ Jesus. This is a guy who perhaps knew him best. They, you know, He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he said, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, the light. The other apostles knew so as well, even bowing in worship to him. And these were Jews who were commanded to have no other gods but one, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Noah, Moses, David, Isaiah, Daniel, etc. The apostles who knew Jesus better than anyone else never experienced sin from Jesus. You don't have to be around me 24-7 to become aware that I still fall short of God's righteousness. But I thank God that in Jesus I am seen as righteous. He has given me his righteousness in exchange for my sinfulness, for which he took the judgment of the wrath of God on my behalf. We read it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, For he made him who knew no sin, the Apostle Paul agrees, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Hebrews 4.15, the writer says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, some people say, well, that's, that's easier if you're not sinning, you know, to endure temptation. You know, you endure temptation until you don't endure it anymore. That's, a, that's shorter than enduring it and not sinning at all. And so he endured these temptations, all these points, yet without sin. Hebrews 7, verses 25 through 28, says, Therefore he is able also to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, since he's raised from the dead. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. So Jesus is sinless without spot or blemish or flaw, He's perfect in holiness and righteousness. And when Jesus comes to be baptized by John the baptizer, John objects. It's found in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. It says, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? You can imagine John's predicament. He's been baptizing people for repentance and they're confessing their sins. And here comes Jesus showing up and he's like, what do you mean? Um, You want me to baptize you? And yet John knew that that he was supposed to do that. We'll see that as as well. But it's that shock, you know, being in the presence of someone he knows perfect righteousness. And I'm supposed to do this for him. I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandal as we saw last week so john says you're coming to me Uh, john's been given a word that by this he would recognize the messiah 
But when it comes down to it, he sees his inadequacy. It's like Peter when they took that drought of fish and Peter said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He wasn't saying he didn't want to be around Jesus. He's saying, I don't deserve to be in your presence. In verse 15 of Matthew 3, Jesus answers and says to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. Okay, I guess I'll baptize you then. And when he'd been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, as we're reading in Mark. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So why was Jesus baptized? His own reason is given in Matthew 3.15 here, where he says, It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Other than this is the part of the Father's plan. This is part of the Father's plan that I need to follow, and I need to follow His plan to the letter. Sometimes people question why Jesus lived so many years in obscurity before revealing Himself. We've already seen He said, "I always do those things that please Him." Jesus was not seeking His own glory. You remember the incident when He was 12 years old. And they went to Jerusalem for the feast, and he stayed behind, and they were a day's journey from Jerusalem, and they they thought he was hanging out with the relatives because they all traveled together, and they're like, where's Jesus? Well, I don't know. And so they went back to Jerusalem looking for him and found him in the temple, both uh, asking and answering questions with these religious leaders. Yeah. You remember Mary saying, well, don't you know... I and your father have been looking for you and the mild rebuke. <laughs> Don't you know that I have to be about my father's business because, of course, Joseph was a stepfather. A guardian. But Jesus had another father. And so Jesus needs to follow the plan of the father. He uh, he obeyed his parents then until the age of maturity. Right? He grew up in the carpenter shop. And he never saw it self-promotion, fame, or glory, even after he began his public ministry, it was always the Father that he was seeking to glorify. Why didn't Jesus reveal himself to everyone and not just those to whom he chose? You know, we're welcome to ask the why to such questions, but God is under no obligation to explain himself to us. We can disagree with his plans or his way of doing things, but he is God and we are not. Now, back in my MD packing company days, a friend of mine bought me a t-shirt. I don't know what ever happened to that t-shirt. The New Age, remember the New Age t-shirt? Said uh, on the front it said even in this new age, two things are crystal clear, oh, crystal. And then on the back it had number 1 it said there is a god. And number 2 said you are not him. <laughs> so we can complain to God about his choices, plans, and actions, but we will find that this is not wise. Ask, but accept his response, even if it is to keep his own counsel. The wise thing is to accept his revelation as he has given it, 
We may not understand his reasons. We may not perceive with full understanding what he has already said to us at this time in our life. But trusting him in these things is part of exercising faith in him as Lord. If we refuse to accept his will and his way, then who do we think we are? Can we answer him as Job could not? He's the creator. We are the creature. And if we trust him, we will have his comfort. Deuteronomy 29.29, Moses speaking, says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We can fully understand, when we fully understand the things that are revealed, then we can delve into the secret things. For we will know as we are known. That time is not yet. And we know God's character, which should give us great comfort concerning those things that we don't know or don't understand. Who is he? In Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we're told, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That's the character of the God that we serve and believe in. He comforts us in all our tribulation. Uh, there was a time when uh, Jacob, you recall, uh, Joseph was cast into a pit and then sold into slavery in Egypt. And uh, they took his coat of many colors and dipped it in goat's blood. And so Jacob's thinking, oh, uh, Joseph has been destroyed. He's dead, you know. And But Jacob thought Joseph was dead because his, his brothers, Jake, Joseph's brothers, had lied to Jacob. But you remember when they sought to comfort Jacob, the family thought he, it says he refused to be comforted. Our God is a God of all comfort. We don't want to refuse to be comforted with the comfort that he gives. It's so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Jesus says he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. There are a couple of thoughts I have here as to what that could mean. Isaiah 53:12. Isaiah, right, this is God speaking, says, Therefore I will divide him, this Messiah, who's taken our sins upon himself, I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This numbering with the transgressors being counted as one of them is associated by the gospel writers Mark and Luke, and rightly so with his being crucified between the two thieves. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that in being baptized, he is also numbering himself with the transgressors. He is identifying himself with mankind, as many commentators note. Throughout his ministry, he hung around with imperfect people, that is, sinners. He was working to seek and save that which was lost, according to Luke 19.10. He was separate from sinners in his nature, as we read in Hebrews, but he did not separate himself from sinners in his living. He came to teach sinners, to touch sinners, to heal sinners, and to redeem sinners. In Hebrews 2.14, we read about this identification with sinful man or transgressors. 
Uh, Hebrews 2.14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. In Romans 8.3, we're told what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. He didn't condemn sin from an exalted, aloof position, but he condemned sin where reality lives, in the flesh, in his own life, in his own body. In this becoming a human being, then, he qualified to be a kinsman redeemer. It was necessary to be a close relative in order to redeem property or people in Israel. In his baptism, he numbers himself with the transgressors. Later, when on trial by men, he is numbered by man with the transgressors. Secondly, this, that is, this baptism is the sign that John the Baptist was given by which he would know that the Messiah has come. He knows by the Spirit, as Jesus shows up, that Jesus is the Messiah. Thus, the objection we saw earlier. But after the baptism, John is left with no doubt who the Messiah is at least until the later events of his imprisonment cloud his judgment. In John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, it says, The next day, and this is uh, after the priests and Levites have challenged his authority, he's cleansed the temple, and they're saying, By what authority are you doing these things? And it says, The next day, I'm sorry, this is when the the, uh, authorities question John's authority. And say, well, by what authority are you baptizing? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And so the next day after this challenge, John sees Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He recognizes who he is. He says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel Therefore, I came baptizing with water. This is the whole purpose that John was sent to baptize. He came baptizing with water and to prepare people for the Lord. And John bore witness in verse 32, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him. He didn't know him. He knew him when he showed up, but he didn't know who this was going to be that would come to him that would be baptized. And he said, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So this is the reason Jesus was baptized. He was identified as the Messiah through this experience of the Spirit coming upon him and the voice speaking from heaven. So John was able to point out then that Jesus as the Messiah to those who heard him. And there were those listening who then began to follow Jesus and were later chosen as apostles. And we'll see some of them in this first chapter of Mark. Lastly, William MacDonald points out that baptism for the Lord was a symbolic action picturing his eventual baptism into death at Calvary and his rising from the dead. Thus, at the very outset of his public ministry, there was a vivid foreshadow of a cross and an empty tomb. 
We can say just as baptism for us is illustrating our death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus, so baptism for Jesus was a figure of his sacrifice for sin. In keeping with the meaning of New Testament baptism for us, we also see in Jesus' baptism the initiation of a call, a ministry, a direction, as Jesus commences upon his public ministry that leads inexorably to the cross, thankfully followed by the resurrection. In Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 again, it says, It came to pass in those days, so there's in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4, that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting. Uh, this term is, uh, the heavens are torn apart is the word that Mark uses. He uses this word one more time when he talks about the veil in the temple being rent asunder. And so the, the heavens are torn apart as as the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now this is the first use of the word love in Mark or any, any form of the word love, agapio. And, and it's also the same incident that's the first uh, place that love is used in Matthew and Luke. The first mention in John, of course, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. The first mention of love in the Bible, Genesis 22, where Abraham, he said, uh, God tells him, take your son, your only son, whom you love. So he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased or in whom I already delight. He's already well pleased with Jesus. He hasn't even started his public ministry yet. He's well pleased with him in this carpenter's life before public ministry. We can imagine Jesus carrying out the responsibilities of the oldest son in the family, as it seems that Joseph is no longer alive. He's never yet having done a miracle, a healing, a teaching, but he's never been displeasing to the father as a human son or a brother, a cousin, or in any other relationship. Now, Jesus had at least four brothers. And he had sisters, so at least two sisters. So we're talking at least seven children in that family. And he was the eldest. So he had responsibilities at home. And then if Joseph has passed off the scene, he has responsibilities to take on uh, caring for the family, providing for the family. So we see in this beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, all three members of the Godhead are present and active. God the Father speaks from heaven. The Holy Spirit descends from the parting heavens upon Jesus, the Son, like a dove. John saw this as well as Jesus. We know John saw it. We're not told the experience of anyone else and what their perception was. We know when Paul was struck down on the road. And some other times when the Father would speak from heaven, it would say people thought it thundered. So some people heard the voice. Some people just heard noise, you know, like loud thunder or something. But we're not told what the experience was other other bystanders here. But we are given John the Baptist's testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. Some do not believe that these types of passages, like at the baptism, are what they seem. 
They think because God said that He is one in Deuteronomy 6.4 that these indications of interaction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not genuine in the natural sense. But Jesus was not casting His voice into heaven. The Father is not a ventriloquist dummy. And the Holy Spirit... Um, He didn't produce a dove like a manifestation to descend upon Him. It was not the human part of Jesus being spoken to by the divine part of Jesus, as some try to uh, describe it. Jesus was not schizophrenic. He was not a stage magician. This is reality. The Father is speaking from heaven. The Spirit is descending upon Him as a dove. In John 17, 24, When Jesus is praying this prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world, the Father and the Son. Father loved the Son before the world was created. Jesus is not saying, I loved myself before the foundation of the world. Or my divine nature loved my human nature before the world began. It is clear from the full record of Scripture that Jesus and the Father, and we can include the Spirit as well, are one God, but three distinct persons. That's the term, the word that's usually used, you know, may not be an adequate term. I'm not sure we have adequate language to to express this. But we know that they interrelate with one another. They are distinct, but not entirely separate. They are one God. So Jesus says in John 10:30, "I and my Father are one." And this is also a rebuke to those who deny Christ's deity. This is the greater error in denying God's triunity. When Jesus says this, "I and the Father are one," they took up stones to stone him. They knew what his what he was claiming that he was God come in the flesh. So he says, I and the Father are one, but Jesus never says, I am the Father. He tells Philip, John 14, uh, verses 9 through 11, Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? Because Philip had said, Just show us the Father, and that would be good enough. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, Jesus could have cleared up any confusion by saying, I am the Father. But that's not what he says. He says, so how can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father because they're one. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. There's this unity between the members of the Godhead. Then there's the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verses 8 through 10, it says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So we have the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ equated. And then he says, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. You know, we we invite Jesus to come into our hearts to dwell within us. He comes in the person of the Holy Spirit. So we've got the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ. And if Christ is in you, these are all 
different ways of expressing God's presence in our lives. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, as Paul's praying for the Ephesians, he says that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. In John 14, verses 15 through 18, Jesus, speaking to his apostles, says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is someone who is distinct from Jesus. He's with them, would be in them when he comes. But then Jesus says this after he says, I'll send you another helper. He says, I won't leave you orphans. I will come to you. In John 14, verse 23, Jesus answers and says to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The father and the son, he says, we'll come and we'll make our home with this one who loves me and keeps my word. My father will love him. And so we find the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. That's clear from everything that's taught in Scripture for the New Testament believer. It's the same as having Jesus and the Father because they are one, unified. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each identified as God, but they are never said to be identical with one another in person. I'm not sure we can fully comprehend this, but we can accept God's testimony concerning himself. We don't want to make a caricature of what the scripture says about God's nature, nor do we want to reduce Jesus to less than God having come in the flesh. In this gospel, according to Mark, there's an assumption of basic knowledge or historical facts on the part of the reader. The gospel has been preached throughout the known world at this time, and the main persons in the story are known. Mark doesn't have to give a lot of details about John or Jesus. People knew about John and his baptism. They knew Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. When Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius and the gathering in his house, he declared to them in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 36, says, The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. That that word you know, he says, speaking to Cornelius, this Gentile, and the other Gentiles that were gathered there. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. These things were known. They were shared. They were preached. This anointing of Jesus with the Holy Spirit, that's what we see. The Spirit descending upon him as a dove. Now, God doesn't give Jesus the Spirit by measure. That is, he has the Holy Spirit in fullness, according to John 3.34. This one that's anointed went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to, to witnesses chosen before by God, 
even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So these these facts were known. They were in the known world at this time, the basic story of the gospel of Jesus coming and what he accomplished. So this fact of the resurrection spread rapidly and the details surrounding the gospel became known, uh, well known, even if at times not believed. If we look at Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 then, it says, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. In Matthew and Luke it is said that Jesus was led into the wilderness. In Mark he is driven by the Spirit. This is an obedience to the Father that Jesus would not deny. I mean, he never would. But this is a strong, powerful leading by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is compelled by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. In the wilderness, Jesus is tempted by Satan. Mark points out that the temptation went on for the full 40 days. The details of the final temptations, or the temptation template, you might say, are given in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. But as we read, Jesus was tempted in all points, yet he never sinned. Now, these stated temptations weren't the only temptations that Jesus endured without sin, but these are the kinds of temptations that we all deal with. And we find Jesus dealing with them by the Word of God. It is knowing and trusting the truth of his Word that enables a person to resist temptation. Luke points out that after the temptations, the devil departed from Jesus for a time or until a more convenient time. The temptations Jesus endured in the wilderness fall into the basic categories of temptation that John delineates in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John says that all that is in the world consists of the lust of the flesh, those physical desires we have, the lust of the eyes, the desire for things. Um, you know, we used to have advertising in the old days. That was letting people know something was available. Now we have marketing. That's no longer letting people know what's available. That's saying you have to have this because you have to go for all the gusto you can get. And this is what's going to make your life complete. And and mostly in recent years, decades maybe, it's been accompanied by you know beautiful people and sexual references and all sorts of things. So that's culturally instituted temptation. That's what marketing is. But that's the lust of the eyes, the desire for these things that are on your screen, you know, calling out to you. Oh, isn't that pretty? You know, doesn't that look good? I bet it tastes good. And finally, the pride of life, the desire to exalt self over God. And Jesus was tempted in all these ways. He tempted, uh, the devil tempted Eve in the same ways. The devil tempts us in all these things as well. But we do not need his help to be tempted by sin. We don't need the devil's help. Our flesh is sufficient to lure us after all that is in the world. 
James tells us in James 1, 14 and 15, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. But although we don't need any extra help, our flesh, the world, and the devil conspire against us to bring us down. We are to resist the devil, James 4, 7. Steadfast in the faith, 1 Peter 5, 9, as Jesus did. And we are told that he will flee from us as he did from Jesus. But like the Terminator, he'll be back. Now, people blame all sorts of things on the devil that are really their own flesh. They may speak of a demon of gluttony or a demon of anger or envy or drunkenness or just about any other failing you can think of. And wouldn't it be great if all you had to do was have that demon cast out of you and, and it went away, you know? No, that's not a demon. That's your fleshly lusts that are pursuing and that seek to dominate your life. That's walking in the flesh rather than in the spirit. The devil will encourage you in sin and he will pull out all the stops in tempting you. But you are the one responsible if you sin. So don't blame it on the demon of chocolate. Now, demons may possess or live in an open or willing vessel, but a demon cannot live where Jesus lives. Your best defense against an unclean spirit or devil or demons is to let Jesus come into your heart or your inner being. He wants to be in your life, enjoying fellowship with you, giving you new life and comfort by his spirit. But you have to be you have to open your life to him. So do it today. Just talk to him as you would to any other person. One other aspect of the temptation of Jesus, he knows what every temptation is like. He knows all our struggles, as the hymn says, and he's able to minister to all those who are tempted with perfect understanding. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, says, therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, Mark says the only gospel that mentions the wild beasts in the wilderness, when Jesus was out there being tempted, I imagine they were fairly tame around Jesus. Are any beasts wild to the Lord? He doesn't even fear Leviathan. But these are creatures that are of danger to humans. And so it could have instilled fear. But I don't know, maybe the devil tried to use them against Jesus. I think they recognized Jesus and they were like, I don't think so. <laughs> not going to happen. Because it's, there's not a big deal made about it. But after the 40 days of temptation, the angels came and ministered to him. We are not told specifically how they served him. No doubt they were a comfort after such a severe trial. Interestingly, one of the devil's temptations of Jesus, uh, in which he quoted Psalms 91, verses 11 and 12, it says, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And he tempted Jesus to throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple to force God to act on this promise and rescue him. 
Jesus didn't fall for that. But after the temptations are finished, we do see the angels fulfilling this God-given role as it was intended in the psalm. They come ministering to him. All things were to be as the Father willed, not as Jesus willed. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, it says, after John was put in prison, again, there's an assumption of knowledge here concerning this story. Uh, We don't see John in prison and get that account until chapter 6 of Mark. Uh, But the people knew these basics again. So after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. A parallel passage in Mark 4, 17 says, uh, he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. These are synonymous terms. People try to figure out how they differ, but they're used interchangeably. Uh, one commentator read, so the kingdom of God is the universe, but the kingdom of heaven is just what takes place on earth. I don't know. I mean, he used this. The Holy Spirit uses the different phrases in the same context, so. Uh, And in verse 15, it says he came saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the message Jesus comes beginning with. He begins his public ministry. Uh, What the good news or the gospel is, is not spelled out for us at this time. It unfolds as the book of Mark proceeds. But Jesus says the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. We know that the earthly kingdom in which Jesus will reign for a thousand years, followed by an eternal rule in the new heavens and the new earth, has not yet come. They are yet to be. But wherever the king is, there is his kingdom. Jesus did not tell Pilate that he was not a king or that he did not have a kingdom. He affirmed that he is the king of the Jews. But he told Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. And that now my kingdom is not from here. But where the king is, there is the kingdom. He rules in the hearts of those who recognize him as their king. He is indeed the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But he is not yet exerting his rule over the kingdoms of this world. The Apostle John cites Zechariah 9.9 which he quotes in John 12:15 Fear not daughter of Zion behold your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt he was the king at that time uh, he abbreviates this a bit Zechariah 9:9 9, 9 expanded says rejoice greatly o daughter of Zion shout o daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you he is just having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey a colt the foal of a donkey He's our king now, the head of the church, and we are his subjects. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So we have this uh, kingdom presently and we look forward to that kingdom to come and when our bodies are transformed that's when the kingdom comes we await the coming of the kingdom and it is once again at hand as Jesus said back in James chapter 5 verses 8 and 9 he says you be patient establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand 
Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago. The coming of the Lord is at hand. The judge is standing at the door. But it remains true. He's been standing at the door for a long time from our perspective, but only a moment from his. Jesus takes up the message of the Baptist. Repent and believe in the gospel. We spoke at length about repentance last week. That message is on the website, but we will revisit it a little. To repent again is to have a change of mind, a radical change of mind regarding who Jesus is, and it results in a change of life. It's appropriate that repentance begins with a change of mind or thinking because the end of sinful actions starts with an end the end of sinful actions starts with an end to sinful thinking. My ni- my mind is renewed in Christ, my thinking is changed to come into alignment with his thinking. Once I repent, the word of God is critical in the continuance of this transformation in thinking. Since we have God's mind, his thoughts revealed to us through scripture. Our minds are renewed by his word, transformed from the world's way of thinking to God's way of thinking. We don't magically have God's thoughts when we believe without immersing ourselves in his word. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Ephesians 4.23, we're exhorted, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Back in the 70s, Barry McGuire used to travel and do concerts with the second chapter of Acts. And uh, they put out an album called To the Bride that, you know, included some of the comments they would make between songs and so forth and I don't know we went to Carbondale in 70 74 maybe Barry McGuire in second chapter of Acts were playing at uh, SIU and so we you know heard this stuff live but Barry talked about in in one song he talked about um Someone he a non believer that he was he knew and he was talking to and the guy told him, Man, the trouble with you Christians, you all been brainwashed. Well, Barry said, That's true. He said, But so have you. He said, The difference is that we Christians have chosen who we want to wash our brains. <laughs> he said, My my brains needed a good scrubbing, you know. <laughs> they were dirty. But reading the Word, as you get into to reading the Word and meditating on it, thinking about it, that's the laundry cycle for your mind. When I repent biblically, I follow Jesus as King and as Lord. He's now the boss of my life, and I serve Him. Not perfectly, but in reality, really. I don't serve myself any longer. It's possible to repent and not believe with a biblical faith if we regard repentance as a change of behavior only. I can break old habits through the power of my will. Maybe I can't, but some people can. I can reform my life in my own strength and for my own motives. 
I can do these things without exercising faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So I can repent and never believe. But I cannot believe in a biblical sense without repenting, without a real change of mind that places Jesus first in my life, not in a theoretical sense, but in reality. I don't wait for the kingdom to come on the earth. I serve him as king now in this life because he has brought me into his kingdom. David Guzik says, some people think that repentance is mostly about feelings, especially feeling sorry for your sin. It's wonderful to feel sorry about your sin, but repent isn't a feelings word. It's an action word. Jesus told us to make a change of the mind, not merely to feel sorry for what we have done. Repentance speaks of a change of direction, not a sorrow in the heart. Although repentance is not mostly about feelings, it does involve a godly sorrow of the heart, but not sorrow for sorrow's sake. It is not a pity party. It's not self-pity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9-11, through 11, Paul writes to them about causing them sorrow, and he says, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorrow in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. You can sorrow in a godly manner or in a fleshly manner. In verse 10, he says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Which type of sorrow are we experiencing concerning our sin? He says, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. How is that? What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. This sorrow produces repentance. I want to live a life pleasing to God. I no longer love the things I loved before. They become a burden to me even if I am tempted by them. Ultimately, a godly sorrow produces a hatred of the sinful things that I was once attracted by. It's a day of rejoicing when I see those things through God's eyes, and I am disgusted by them. It's been said, repentance does not describe something we must do before we come to God. It describes what coming to God is like. If you're in New York and I tell you to come to Los Angeles, I don't really need to say leave New York and come to Los Angeles. To come to Los Angeles is to leave New York. And if I haven't left New York, I certainly can't come to Los Angeles. We can't come to the kingdom of God unless we leave our sin and the self-life. The preaching of Jesus then is to repent and believe the gospel. To believe is not an intellectual assent alone, although the intellect is involved. It is a clinging to and trust as you might to a life preserver in the midst of the sea. The ancient Greek word Jesus used for believe is pistio, which means much more than knowledge or agreement in the mind. It speaks of a relationship of trust and dependence. In this case, it involves putting your life in the hands of another. Once again, if you have never done this, I encourage you not to put it off until another day. We are told, behold, today is the salvation. We do not know if we will have tomorrow. If we pass him by, we may not have another opportunity. And he loves you so. He desires only what is best for you, now and forever. 
and he's long-suffering, so patient with our weaknesses. He does not cast us out, but tenderly ministers to us when we fall short. He's merciful and gracious. Choose him today and taste and see that the Lord is good.